We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 25, excuse me, Acts chapter 25 this morning, where we'll pick up our scripture reading. It says, Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest... And the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem, while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore he said, Let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him, and when he had remained among them for uh, them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple. Nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender... Or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There was a certain man left, at, left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together, without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I, as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion 
and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also like, would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and, entered, and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have found nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Makes sense. Well, that's the word, the Lord of the Word, the Lord's Word, and uh, we can learn something from that this morning. Thank you. One of the things that we can learn is that Festus, like Felix and like Pilate before him, were gutless. They could not lead, and that's not, that's not leadership, okay? That's just being a placeholder in a spot of leadership. So uh, you know, we're kind of related to our lives. Sometimes we just have to make a decision, and sometimes you're not going to have enough information to make the perfect decision. I faced a situation like that this past week, but you have to make a decision. And, uh, you know, to not make one, or let's say to make a non-optimal one, is uh, better than not making one at all. Yeah? And in this case, if he had no charges that were worthy of death, what he should have done is acquitted him and said to the Jews, goodbye, I'd like to do you a favor, I'll do you a favor another time. But that wanting to do them a favor drove him into this place of non-leadership. And uh, it's something that we need to watch out for uh, in our own lives. So, All right, if you would turn your Bibles in the Old Testament to the book of Hosea. And how are you going to find Hosea, you ask? Well, if you find the end of Ezekiel and Daniel in your Old Testament... Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, that area, Daniel, and then Hosea, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and so on. You come to the first of the minor prophets, only minor by reason of length, not by reason of importance. We uh, had, uh, we, me and Jansen and I had discussed uh, doing a Bible message for a book of the Bible, so I selected to try it with Hosea. <clears throat> we'll see how it goes. Um, the, whole, <laughs> the whole book in a message, just summarizing it to uh, kind of orient ourselves to the meaning of the book and kind of the content of it, 
The truth that I've drawn from this this morning for you is that God is willing to take unfaithful people and bring them into a loving, faithful relationship with himself. God is willing to take unfaithful people and bring them into a relationship with himself. That is a precious truth, uh, and we see it illustrated and explained and prophesied here over and over again in the 14 chapters of Hosea's prophecy. Obviously, we won't be able to read all of these. We have read them together in public reading before. Uh, We will touch on a number of portions, however, as we try to understand this book of Hosea, maybe demystify it a little bit for you because it's not uh, you know, as difficult as you might think, oh, it's like Revelation, or oh, it's like Daniel, or oh, it's like all these minor prophets are tough to understand. It's not really. Um, in fact, if you can kind of think of the Old Testament in a very summarized way like this, I think it will help you understand it. You have the first five books of the Bible. Those are the foundation of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, okay, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Moses wrote them. They're the gold standard. Okay, those, that's called the Pentateuch or the law, the Torah is in there. Okay, then you have the uh, prophets and the writings. Okay, and those, despite the kind of, I don't know what the word is, almost, I don't know, fanaticism about the idea of evolution, despite the idea that people think Liberal scholars think that the Old Testament religion evolved over the course of time, and you have all these different authors, the JEDP theory and all of this, and you have changes happening throughout the history of the nation of Israel, uh, and you have, uh, you know, what about these prophets? And it just gets all confused. It's very simple. God laid it down with Moses. The prophets call the people back to faithfulness, to the covenant that God gave to Abraham and to, uh, to, Mo- to Moses and the law of Moses and so on. That's all the prophets really are doing. They're saying, you guys have sinned. You need to get back to where you're supposed to be or else God's going to carry out these judgments. And then after he carries out those judgments, which unfortunately did occur, yeah. then he's going to restore the nation of Israel to a place of prominence in the eschaton, in the last times. That's what the prophets are all about. They, there's really not... How can I say? There is new information, but there's not like a revolutionary new system or way of doing things. God's calling them back to covenant faithfulness to the Mosaic law, and failing that, he's saying, I'm going to pour out the promises that I gave to you for judgment. And the writings often uh, are dealing with wisdom, how to live wisely under the Mosaic law in that context, in, in the world, it's, you know, the Psalms. Blessed is the the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. He's a wise man, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who brings himself under the lordship of Christ, the Messiah, Psalm 2. Or uh, listen to wisdom, uh, Proverbs 1 through 8, uh, and and the wisdom of of love and in um, Song of Solomon and the wisdom of life in a sin-cursed world in uh, uh, Ecclesiastes or Kohelet. Um, what other what other book did I miss? Uh, you've got that's that's the Old Testament. That's really what it is. So you're going to expect when you come to Hosea some of the same themes, and you will get those same themes. Now Hosea spanned the reign of four kings. Look at verse one: the word of the Lord that came to Hosea the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah. Remember, he was that long reigning king. 
Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So this puts him in the time frame around 755 to 710 BC. But his promise or his prophecies regarding the northern kingdom and its destruction, we'll, we'll see that even early on in chapter 1, uh, those prophecies had to come before the events had actually happened. Otherwise, there would be no point in, in rehearsing them as if they were prophecies. Uh, those had to occur before what year? Anybody remember? I didn't say it already, did I? 722 B.C., when the northern kingdom was, was defeated by Assyria and uh, deported off and really never came back, never really came back to prominence or anything like that. And so those prophecies had to be given before 722, probably some years before. So we're looking at 755 to 730 B.C. We can kind of narrow in or zoom in on his, uh, on his prophecy, kind of figure out where that was or when it was, rather. He begins in chapter 1, verse 2, with point number one in our sermon here this morning, a shocking illustration, a shocking illustration. Look at verse 2. It says, When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry, and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So the prophet was to marry a woman who was a harlot, likely before their marriage and again during the marriage. Verse 2 explains why. For the land has committed great harlotry. How did they do that? By Here's the means by which they did that, going back to our Sunday school this morning. The means by which they departed, by, or by which they committed great harlotry, by departing from the Lord. In Hosea's situation, the harlotry was physical. A woman who sold herself, later was married, then went back to her old lifestyle. This is a real-life illustration. Listen to what I'm saying. This is not just a made-up story. This actually occurred in Hosea the prophet's life. It's like, remember with Ezekiel, when he had to lie on one side and lie on the other side, physically enacting or build a little model of Jerusalem or go out through the wall. He was enacting what was going to happen to the people of Israel. Here Hosea is enacting what they have done against God and how his disposition is toward his wife Israel. So a real-life illustration of the nation of Israel who had been taken by God as his own, a spiritual marriage, I put in quotes there, so to speak. And then the nation left God and fooled around with other gods like Baal. Chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Do you get the, the, the terrible irony of that? It's awful. God gave you gifts, money, food, a house. What are you doing if you're taking those gifts, melting down the silver, and making a little statue to bow down to? God gave you the gifts, then you turn them against God? God gave you life, and then you turn that against God? What are you doing? 
Why are you doing this to yourself? Verse 13 of chapter 2, I will punish her for the days of the bales to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 17, For I will take from her mouth the names of the bales, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. Chapter 9, verse number 10. I'm just, we're just kind of looking at some highlights in the book here and putting together this shocking illustration. Chapter 9, verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits of the fig tree in the first season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. 11.2, as they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. And then finally, chapter 13, verse 1, when Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel, but when he offended through Baal worship, he died. This is what Gomer, I mean, Hosea and Gomer's marriage was going to illustrate. So Hosea married this woman named Gomer, It says he took her to himself. Verse number three, he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, some have suggested this son and these children are not his, but I take it that from the way the text is written that these children are his children. Jezreel is the first. His name portended two things. So God not only has the relationship between Hosea and Gomer picturing what's happening with Israel and God, but he's also having the children's names be significant prophecies as well. So name this one Jezreel. His name pretended these two things. First, God would judge Jehu for his violence against Ahab at Jezreel, the location. And God would bring an end to the kingdom of Israel. Let's look at this. Call his name Jezreel, verse 4. For in a little while I will avenge the blood of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Here's God telling us he is going to bring an end to the kingdom of Israel. Now, what is the kingdom of Israel? This is the northern kingdom. This is sometimes called Ephraim. This kingdom had walked away from God. They set up their own little uh, worship center in Samaria uh, on their own little mountain there. They selected their own kings. They didn't listen to God. They kept the priests going back down to Jerusalem if they they tried anyway. They wouldn't let people go down and worship there. Uh, It was a mess. They uh, went their own route following Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and all the rest of it. And so they led people to walk away from God and the true worship of God. Second child comes along, verse number 6. God says, call her name Lo-Ruhamah. Lo meaning no or not. This daughter's name meant that God would have no mercy or no pity on the house of Israel. It says, I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, sword, or battle, by horses or horsemen. So in contrast, God is going to have mercy on Judah, not immediately, (laughs) not immediately. There is going to be a period of judgment, of testing, of tribulation. Uh, Of course, it's going to last a long time. We'll see that in a few moments. 
but he would bring them back. Not so the northern tribes. They departed, apostatized, they're gone. So you have Jezreel, you have Lo-Ruhamah, then you have a third one comes along, a third child. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Okay, a brother comes along, and God said, call his name Lo-Ami. Again, Lo meaning not. Am is the Hebrew word for people, and the I suffix at the end is my or I. It's a personal pronoun suffix indicating the first person. Call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. So this kid's name means not my people. You are not my people. Now, what does the Jewish person pride himself on? He's part of God's people. If you don't believe in God and the Messiah today, you're not God's people. It doesn't matter how many times you say it. You can say it till you're blue in the face. It doesn't mean anything. In this case, the people relying on the declaration, I'm part of God's people. God's saying, no, you're not my people. You're not my people. And he said, and I will not be their God. Now, this is devastating to the nation because throughout the Hebrew Bible is repeated this mantra, I will be their God and they will be my people. We saw it in Genesis chapter 17, verse 8. Also, I give to your land, sorry, give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. He's saying, I'm, I'm not going to be their God. They're not going to be my people. And then later on in the prophets, you see it again over and over again. I'll just take you to a couple of them in the New Covenant passage in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse number 33. The scripture says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, uh, me, my people. But now, because of their sin, they're not my people. Or let's look at a couple in Ezekiel. We'll find Ezekiel 37. I've given you all... I don't know if all the references, but a goodly number of them in the notes there. You can look them up later, if you please. Ezekiel 37, verse 23. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Look at Zechariah 8, 8. I mean, that's a little on down the line here from where we're at. Zechariah 8, almost to the end of your Old Testament. Zechariah 8, 8. I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. This is used by Peter and also by Paul in the New Testament with which you may be more familiar, uh, to tell us that as Gentiles, we were not God's people, but now we have been made the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. What a blessing that is. So very significant children in this situation. 
After this, we're not given a lot of detail here, but Gomer leaves Hosea to return to her old life. But if you go to chapter 3, verse 1, notice what it says. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. These raisin cakes were something probably eaten during some pagan festival or ritual meal uh, that was in worship to these pagan deities. So he goes, uh, verse 2, and bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver. So buys her from some uh, kind of slave owner, if you will, 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. Barely the price of a slave altogether, once you put it, add that all up. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. So this is the shocking part of the illustration. It pictures how God is willing to take back the nation despite her spiritual adultery in going after other gods. 2.19 says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Listen to this. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord, verse 21 of chapter 2. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, with oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth. In other words, there's going to be blessing on the nation. The heavens are going to answer. The earth will respond. The heavens will, will answer with, uh, with rain and snow. And the earth will respond by bringing forth bud and fruiting, like it says in Isaiah 55, and they will be blessed once again. So, a shocking illustration. But there is a little catch here. There will be a period of time when Hosea and Gomer's relationship is cooled down. It takes time in situation like this in life for a married couple to get back together to prove that they're faithful to one another and to remember how to love one another if they've had this kind of transgression. Gomer was going to stay with Hosea many days and not be free to mess around with any other man, and perhaps not even hear her husband either, kind of illustrating the estranged nature that happens between a husband and wife when there's a transgression like this. This illustrated how, uh, God says in chapter 3, the nation of Israel would abide many days. Listen to this. He says, you will stay with me many days, verse 3 and verse 4, for the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return. So let me ask you this. Did this prophecy come true? that they would, not, they would reside many days without king or prince, without sacrifice, without ephod, all of that. Did that prophecy come true? It's true today, my friends. They don't have a king. They don't have a sacrificial system. They don't have a temple. They have nothing of the, of the accoutrements that went with the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? So God is prophesying of, an, of a long age, many days, in which the nation of Israel is set aside and unable to carry on with this worship that it was taught to do back by Moses in the Old Testament. I, 
I mean, to us, it makes sense. The Bible prophesies things, and then they're fulfilled. But when you think about it and you see this, you say, man, God told us what was going to happen. Why are we so surprised when it happens? And why are people so blind to not realize, wait a minute, we are in the fulfillment of this very prophecy that God told against us because we were unfaithful to him. What do you expect? You're going to go away from God in a form of spiritual adultery and go after other gods like a man goes after another lover or a woman goes after another, and then you're just going to come back and everything's going to be hunky-dory and perfectly fine immediately? No, that doesn't happen. There's a long period sometimes of difficulty and adjustment. And this has certainly been true since the year 70 A.D. when the destruction of Jerusalem occurred. The nation has, in a sense, been kind of cured of idolatry, yet they have not embraced Messiah in large part. So their relationship with God is still distant, it's still estranged, it's not right. But they will seek God through the Messiah in the tribulation. How how is that going to work? Well, God's going to basically punish them until they realize, man, we've got to get right with God. And then they will call out to him. And they'll see the one whom they pierced. And they'll realize, man, we esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But it was for our transgressions that he was bruised. We went astray. And he died for us in our place. He made his soul an offering for sin. That's what they're going to say in that end time when they see Christ again. Isaiah 53 is actually them looking back on what they did to the Christ, to the Messiah. Man, they're going to look up to uh, David, their king, actually their prince. He will take a seat lower than Messiah, obviously, but there will be David there. David's son will be there, then Lord, the Messiah Christ. And that's what it's going to look like. But this is what the shocking illustration is about. Who, who in this world would go back and get their wife out of Harlotry, prostitution. 99% of the time it's going to be a divorce, right? Permanent. If God did that to the nation of Israel, then there would be replacement theology, wouldn't there? But there's not replacement theology because God has remarkably said, my grace is overabounding and will take care of all of those kinds of sins. Now, there's not... It's not without condition, shall we say. Uh, Think of the sins of Israel, for example. We've already talked about the idolatry or spiritual harlotry. That's the main sin that's listed in the book. But there are others. There's greed. The people had fallen into greed in chapter 12, verse 7. Deceitful scales are in his hand. He loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, surely I've become rich. I found wealth for myself in all my labors. Greed. And then there's pride, chapter 5 and verse number 5. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah, rather, also stumbles with them. In chapter 7, verse 10, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Well, God should be their pride, but their pride is in themselves. But they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Chapter 6, verse 1, gives us another one of their sins. Uh, Hosea 6, 1. 
what was it, 6-1? No, I think I typed the wrong address there. In other words, a 7-11, actually. I'm just now seeing it. Ephraim is like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. Wherever they go, I'll spread my net on them, and I'll bring them down like birds of the air. Remember, oftentimes we, we said this in our study in Genesis too, that Israel will go to Egypt for help, go to Assyria for help. They make some crazy alliance with somebody to go against somebody or pay somebody off, and it's like, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. And the same is for us, Christians. We, we squirt out and go everywhere, every which direction. Give me guidance here. Give me psychology here. I need a shrink over there. I need counseling. I need this. I need that. What about the Bible? What about spiritual counsel with Christian people, that sort of thing? What about just stopping and praying? Praying. Praying. Trust the Lord about the situation. Then, besides greed, pride, idolatry, and reliance on others but not God, there was no repentance. Chapter 11, verse number 5, He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refused to repent. Keep telling people to repent. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist said the same. Paul preached the gospel of repentance. He said, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And you tell people, repent, repent, repent. God commands all men everywhere to repent, and they don't. And they just sit there like a rock and, and don't change, don't change their mind, don't turn away from their sin. And it all amounts to the last sin on the list that I selected in my study in chapter 13, verse 16. Samaria is held guilty, that's the northern kingdom, for she has rebelled against her God. Rebellion. So throughout the book, then, we read of God's judgment against them as they persist in iniquity. Chapter 13, verse 7 says, God, God says, I'm going to be like a lion towards them. That's not good. Uh, notice also that you'll see in here the sowing and reaping principle. We're familiar with it from the New Testament, but many centuries earlier, the Bible tells us about this in Hosea chapter 8, verse number 7. They sow the wind and reap the what? The whirlwind. It goes from bad to worse. Chapter 10 and verse 12 reflects on this. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness. And what happens, what, what do you get when you plow wickedness? You reap iniquity. You plow it, you get it back. You sow righteousness, you get mercy. Okay? The fruit of peace is sown by them in peace. Righteousness before God. So many, many portions of this, uh, just almost famous verses here that we find in, in this portion. So we have seen the shocking illustration. We've seen the sins of Israel and her unfaithfulness, and now the salvation of God as we close with this last segment of the text, the salvation of God. Even after all of this, God is willing to take them back. The same principle applies today to individuals. 
at this time as it did to the nation at that time. God will take you even though you have behaved terribly. Did you hear that from Sunday school this morning? Even though, concessive relationship of that clause to the previous one, even though you've behaved terribly, what would you expect from behaving terribly that God would do to you? Okay, file 13. Okay, out the trash goes. But the concession, concessive nature of the statement is even though that's true, something unexpected happens. God will still take you back to himself. He is willing to forgive, willing to enter into a personal relationship with you. But you must turn from your sinful lifestyle to him in repentance and faith. Listen, you can, be, you can think, man, I have run far from God. But you know what? If you turn around, you'll find out that he's right there behind you. You hear that? Powerful truth in the gospel of Christ that he simply asks us to turn, and you find that he is there already. This is why Jesus died on the cross, not only for you, but to take the punishment of sins away from you and from the punishment of sins away from the nation of Israel for millennia gone by so that God could welcome them into his family once again. You think that Christ died not only for your sins future to the cross, but he died for the sins done by Israel prior to the cross? And anybody else who was a, a saved person before, it was Melchizedek or uh, whoever, Job or whoever wasn't a, a Jewish person who believed in the true God of the Bible, Adam and Eve, he died for all their sins there too on that cross so that he could welcome them in to heaven with a true washing, a true cleansing of sin. But God calls the nation to repent, as we've already mentioned. He says in verse 1 of chapter 14, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Now notice this. Did you know that there is a sinner's prayer in the Bible? No. Well, you're about to learn, brother. Thank you for answering. Look at chapter 14, verse number 2. Verse 1 says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God. Verse 2, take words with you. When you turn to God, take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, here's the words. Take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. I call this the sinner's prayer. It's not like the sinner's prayer that you hear about. But this is amazing to me because as I read this again, I'm like, wow. Here is God through Hosea telling the people, you need to repent. And when you come, because here's the question, well, how do I repent? And we've told people, even this past week, we're just we're sitting with somebody telling them, how do, I, how do I express my desire to be saved before God? Well, you can pray this way. He's saying, take words and pray this way. Here's how. You ask God, take away my iniquity. That sounds kind of like you're confessing your sin, doesn't it? You can say to God, receive us graciously. Now, this doesn't have all the accoutrements of a sinner's prayer today that comes after this cross behind me here. 
in which we know to say, receive me graciously because Jesus died for my sins and rose again. That hadn't happened yet. It hadn't been revealed yet. So we'll give, we'll give this prayer a pass, okay? It doesn't have all that detail. But you know what? God will receive you graciously. Amen. On the basis of his grace is where your salvation comes from. We've been, we've been saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. We understand that. So take away my iniquity. Receive me graciously. For we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. What are those sacrifices? Well, it's their ongoing expression about repentance and love for God. Look at what they say. Look, Assyria shall not save us. We're not going to go to them anymore. We will not ride on horses. You know, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you know, that little silver statue that they built. We're not going to say to that, you are our gods. You know, like Aaron, I put this gold in and boom, out came this calf and we started worshiping it. Here are your gods, O Israel. Right. And then the expressions go on of repentance. For in you, the repentant sinner says, the fatherless finds mercy. How does God respond? I will heal them. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from him. Chapter 14, verse number 8. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? You see that? That's an expression of repentance. I'm not going to do anything more with that. That lifestyle that I had? Finished. I'm not going back that way. Notice how the nation will respond in the future with a few short phrases. Chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. That's God's salvation. You shall know the Lord. Secondly, chapter 3, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. How else will they respond? Chapter 6, verse 1, they will seek the Lord. They will return to him. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. Or chapter 5, verse number 15, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And finally, they will walk with the Lord. Chapter 11, verse number 10, they shall walk after the Lord. He, shall, he will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria, and I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. This is what your life needs to look like today. You need to know the Lord. You need to fear the Lord. You need to seek the Lord. You need to return to the Lord, and you need to walk with the Lord, just like God called the people in Hosea's day. Your life is a microcosm of the generations-long history of Israel's unfaithfulness. What happened to them over centuries has happened to you in your early part of your life, and if you've come to faith in Christ, then you've crossed that divide, and now you're in the faithful part of your life, we'll call it. 
Hopefully you will receive the grace of God and then experience the other side of the situation, not the enduring wrath of God, but the enduring faithfulness of God. No matter your sinful lifestyle, God will take you in if you fear his name and call upon him for salvation. And that's only part of it that Hosea talks about. He adds a number of other truths. I just don't have time to go into in great detail, but I'll highlight them briefly for you. He says in chapter 4, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The knowledge here is about God's word and the law. Hosea 4 also says they shall eat but not have enough. Why? Because they've ceased obeying the Lord. God's people ask counsel from their wooden idols, just like we often seek counsel from people other than God, and I just say a shame on us for that. God first, please. The Bible says in Hosea, empty religious ritual is of no value to God. It says he desires in chapter 6, he desires mercy and the knowledge of God more than sacrifice and burnt offerings. Look at this one in chapter 7. This struck me when I was pondering through here. Verse 2 of chapter 7, they did not consider, I'm sorry, they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. People don't think about that. God knows all of your wickedness. Every little hidden thing in your heart that you're trying to hide from him, it's on the front shelf, top, front and center. He knows it. He sees it just like nothing. Chapter 8 tells us God has written wonderful things to his people in his book. I've written you the wonderful things of my law, but the people consider them strange. Isn't that the case today? I've written the Bible. People look at the Bible and say, that's not only weird, that's evil. How backwards. Substituting light for darkness and darkness for light. Sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. That's what people do today. God spoke by the prophets and gave plenty of witness. Chapter 12, verse number 10 tells us. We also learn in chapter 11, out of Egypt, I called my son. That, that history of Israel uh, became a pattern that Jesus followed, but of course without any of the unfaithfulness that encompassed the nation. Verse number 4 of chapter 13, God reminds us that we must know no God but him because there is no Savior besides our God. No, no God but Him. Chapter 13, verse 14 also says, God will rescue His people from the grave and from death. Listen to this. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. And where Paul got this from is right here. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. God will destroy death and bring life and immortality to light as he has through the gospel. Chapter 14, verse number 9, the last verse in the book. This is kind of like the Ecclesiastes 12. Remember, the fear God and keep his commandments. That's the sum of everything. Listen to this, chapter 14, verse 9. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. So we close with this note 
Somebody who's wise will listen to what Hosea says, and they will listen carefully and follow what we've learned here today. The fool will say, chuck it. I don't need it. I'll go my own way. I'm my own boss. We all do need him, our God and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to look at Hosea in a single gulp today. Obviously, we've only hit the highlights or scratched the surface or whatever we want to say, but I am grateful that we've, I think, achieved some edification here today. It's been strengthening, it's been convicting, it's been challenging, and I pray that if the Spirit of God is working in someone's heart today, that they will take some of those words from that sinner's prayer, as I called it, and approach you and say, Lord, take away our iniquities. Deal with us graciously. We turn away from our sins and turn to you. Would you do that, and especially with the additional knowledge of how that works, because Jesus paid the, the awful penalty of our sin. He took the punishment in our place so that we could have eternal life. Glory to his name. May you bless your people with the knowledge of the Holy One and with a great comfort knowing the word and its truth. In Jesus' name, amen.